Welcome back, everyone. This is the Bless You Boys podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Day. With me, my co-host, Ashley McLennan. Ashley, how's it going tonight? We took a little bit of a break, but we are finally back. We did. We kind of had, like, back and forths. Like, I was sick, and then your computer had a disaster, and it was just like everything was against us, and we didn't get any pre- season-ending podcasts up, but, you know, here we are, day after the World Series, and we're, we're ready to go, ready to do off-season content for you guys. Yep, off-season engage. Um, yeah, I, I kind of thought, like, all right, I'll take a week or two break in September. I, I earned that. Like, I haven't taken a break in five years, you know? Like, I, it's probably been, like, five years where I never went more than four or five days without writing something, but then, yeah, it just spiraled out of control with computer issues, and then... After that, I was just like, ah, screw it. I just want to watch the postseason. We earned it after covering this god-awful team all season. <laughs> so, yeah, it was all right. Yeah, the, the crushing ennui of the season was kind of a lot. And I think most of us were just like, well, I think we can wait to do anything else. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you know, and you had extra crushing ennui because, you know, t- the, the Tampa Rays were right in there early on. Like, they had a pretty pretty stirring rough. wild card game. Yeah. Yep. The Rays did. They won the wild card, and then they went on to face the Astros in the uh, the ALDS and pushed it all the way to five games. And I was pretty darn excited. And I have ordered myself a postseason shirt and everything. And their run in the postseason ended before my shirt got to me. Oh, which is very sad. oh what a, what a poignant um, metaphor. Yeah, but you know what? You know, it, it's tough. You face a team like the Astros and. And, you know, the I think the Rays did a really good job, and I think it was pretty impressive to see just how well their bullpen day went um, throughout. With, and I think that that it really went to show and, and was a testament to how successful that whole Rays opener and bullpenning strategy has really been. Um, and, and I think it did show that it wasn't really a flash in the pan and that we're going to see more and more of it throughout baseball as we go, because we've seen... A bunch of teams this postseason went to their bullpens and had bullpen days and kind of followed the Rays' strategy. So, um, and not to say that the Rays invented bullpen days, but they did kind of pioneer a new approach to them. So, um, I, I think it's interesting, kind of what they, they've brought. Yeah, it's almost it's like they made it positive. You know, they made they made bullpen days a positive Absolutely. thing rather than like, oh, we're screwed. We have to go to a bullpen day. Well, <laughs> And it's funny, it was two two years ago, three years ago, I wrote an article actually for Bless You Boys following the postseason and suggested that same approach because we were seeing starting pitchers coming out of the, the bullpen late in games and and I'd even said that they were going to see a new kind of take on things where we're seeing pitchers getting used differently and I, mean, I, I didn't predict exactly what we saw happen, but we are seeing a very strange change in pitching. And so it was kind of cool to see in the last couple of games, Steven Strasburg go almost a complete game in that game six. Yeah. Um, he went like eight and a third, I think. Um, and just pitched tremendous baseball, completely deserved to win the world series MVP. Um, I know there are people out there that were pro Rendon and, you know, Anthony did a great job, but I think Strasburg's postseason record really spoke for itself. Yeah, I agree. Um, I started out. Game was just- yeah, it really was. I really I started out thinking Rendon too until I looked into Strasburg's numbers, and that was that was just one of the all time greatest postseason runs ever. Maybe right up there with the best ones. It might very well. Yeah. Be. yeah, yeah. It might be historically good, and I mean there there's there, there's aspects to what Rendon did that are amazing. Like I think, and we can get into a bit of the the lesser good. Stuff that yeah, sure. World Series. I think some of it needs to be addressed, but I mean, following that insane 
Trey Turner out call at first in game six. Um, Rendon hitting that two-run bomb was just kind of the perfect exclamation mark. Yeah. And I, I find it so interesting, a team that got so much, two teams that got so much flack for showing emotion and, you know, kind of maybe being a bit too demonstrative on the base paths, that Anthony Rendon is the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Like, he's as old-school gamer as gets, and so I think it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of the two types of play um, demonstrated on the same team, even between him and Soto. They're just so different. Yeah. And so equally right how they do things, like how you choose to perform um, when you're doing your job is, is really a reflection of you. And I, and yeah, I think Rendon's kind of interesting in that he's very old school about things. Yeah. But you also um, see like, if you can't be yourself, yeah. yeah, if you can't be yourself, you're not going to play as yeah. well. And it played out in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But did you see the video? Um, I saw it on Twitter. It was a clip after game, I think five. Um, where like a reporter's like, oh, you know, are you guys, what do you guys got to do differently? And he's like, well, you know, we got to hit, hit, get balls out there for hits. And the guy was like, well, how do you plan on doing that? And he says, well, you know, we've got these things called bats. Yeah, and, <laughs> and he pulls one down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And we really like to like get the ball somewhere in this area and somewhere in this direction. This one's made out of maple. God, Rendon, this is sensational. So, I mean, you know, he has a good sense of humor about things, but it is very. It was neat, I think, to see the difference between him and Soto and Bregman. Yeah, um, and Zach Greinke. Kinds of players you see out on the team and those. Yeah, Greinke. Oh my God. I mean, I could spend days talking about Zach Greinke. Um, he's my new most fascinating player. He really is. Trevor, what's your name? Yep. Stupid Trevor Bauer can go away now. Zach Grinke's a good person and fascinating. Yeah, Zach Grinke's content is going to be infesting the podcast all next year. I mean, I think you can you can pretty much book it. But yeah, what I liked about Rendon too is that he wasn't like being a he was kind of being a smartass, but but he let everybody in on it too. He wasn't just like looking at the reporter like you idiot. But he's just not the guy who's gonna yeah. who's gonna you know work real hard to give you some fabricated quote about you know we're gonna try to hunt fastballs early or you know stuff that you wouldn't tell anybody what you were gonna do yeah. anyway you know he was just he just had fun with it, well, it, it it's, was laid back as usual. It's a dumb question. It is. How are you going to get hits? Well, you know we're gonna go out there and swing our best and do whatever we can, Bob. But like it's true. It's the, any canned answer he's gonna give is just as stupid. So why not go out and be like, well, we've got these things <laughs> called. That's yep, and it does, and it does just fit his personality very well. Like I'm sure Anthony Rendon can talk about hitting all day if he wants to, but you know, yeah, you know, why would he give anything away? Why would he tell you anything? You know, it would just be spiel. Yeah. You know, the whole thing, like, oh, you know, we've got to, you know, we've just got to look for good pitches to hit. You know, you know, we've got to try to find fastballs to try and just go on and on like that. It's like everybody knows what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's a bad question. Like most, I don't know. I don't know if this is a hundred percent true, but most bad answers come from bad questions in my in my experience with uh, athletes because they're not they're not the one who's supposed to be, you know, the, the wordsmith here. You are so reporter yeah, and I mean, guy. The truth of any kind of interviewing, right? Like they they tell you you never ask a question that has a, you know one can have a one word answer. Yeah. Um, and I, I do feel like Granky might be the exception to that because I feel like no matter what kind of question you ask, yeah. give you a one word answer. Yeah, he's the master um, of that. But he's so delightful. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you don't you can ask questions in such a way that you know you're going to get a type of answer. Yeah. Um, 
And, like, I, I think the way to approach that would have been, like, you know, with Granky probably coming up in the next game, and he throws this kind of pitch, how do you think your guy, you guys are planning to approach that would be the smarter way to go instead of how are you going to get a hits? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, at least you're going to get a more accurate sound bite that way. But I think what they ended up getting was much better. <laughs> it's, tr- it's true. I mean, it really did just kind of end up end up working just as well. But, yeah, it's, it's a good rule of, of interviewing to... Yeah, ask ask detailed questions that don't you know don't allow for a yes or no answer, and never just never never ask the guy to just talk about something. God, I hate that. Nothing nothing more infuriating. Like you just watch this guy play baseball for three and a half hours. He's all sweaty, and you're like, hey, do my job for me. <laughs> Say something yeah, interesting. Make me look good. About this thing. Uh, oh. Meanwhile, yeah, contrasted by Zach Greinke being asked about the big game, you know, the big game, game seven, and, and just kind of looking at everybody and being like. Yep, it's uh, gonna be a big game. <laughs> that was it. Yep. That was all he had it's to say. Be a big one. <laughs> that was all he said. Yeah. Uh, you well. you got it you there, know, he reporter. He with a smile, and I think that was kind of an interesting change of pace for Granky because, you know, Granky's been pretty open about some of his his difficulties and his you know neuroatypical um, kind of life that he's had. Yeah. And he deals with anxiety, and he's dealt with depression, and he's been very open about that sort of thing. Yep, was ready to quit um, quit baseball and, at various points when he was, you know, starting out in his major league career or even in the minor leagues, was talking about leaving and giving it up because of social anxiety disorder. And then to see a guy like that yeah. under that much pressure with all these people screaming, like, it's, it's really kind of impressive that yeah. more so than normal that he was able to it, just block that out. I, I think he gets, he gets a lot of flack for going out and saying these one-word answers and pressers ahead of games. But I think what people fail to understand about Grinky is how hard that's got to be just to be in that room yeah, uh, and to be the center of that much focus. And I, I think it's really admirable that he still lives up to his end. Because I think that's the other thing people don't understand either is that there's actually an arrangement as part of the CBA between the BBWA and the MLBPA. So the Baseball Writers of America and the MLB Players Association have it in agreement through MLB and through the collective bargaining agreement that players will will be made available after before and after games to reporters for a period of time. Um, and, and so they're actually required to be. That's part of their job, and they understand that. And so when people get out there and they're like, well, why doesn't Grinky just skip the pressers? He can't. It's part of his job. And I'm sure he could come up with a note saying, I have social anxiety issues. Could we not make this part of my my life because it'll actually hinder my job performance but he doesn't he goes out and yeah and maybe he gives you one or two and maybe his full press conference is 66 words like they counted or whatever it is but i i think if people really understood how difficult that was the fact that he goes out there and does it anyway is really remarkable yeah and it feels like people do understand a lot more than they used to because there were there was a long time where people you know, and maybe this is just partly change in society too, but people would refer to him commonly as like, oh, well, you know, Granky's kind of a head case and all the, all those sorts of things. And you don't hear too much about that anymore. I think Molly Knight uh, in particular did a really good job um, of, of kind of like bringing the real and full, you know, picture of Zach Granky to the fore for people in um, in her book about the Dodgers. Um, that, that was kind of the first place I, I remember reading a lot of the stories about like what, what he's really like. And, you know, it's not, you know, attitude. It's not, you know, disdain or scorn or anything. He's just, he's just got, he's just that dude. He's just in his head. You know, he's, he's doing his own thing. And, 
and maybe isn't you know picking up all the cues from other people and and doing all the trained monkey stuff that all of us are so good at you know recognizing what this person wants us to do or say and and you know he's just not that guy you know he's just just doing yeah. his own thing so yeah i thought it was cool um to see how well he was covered um in, in that and then to see him come through and and pitch really well in a series that you know seemed as most series are these days you know that it was going to be decided by power pitching um, you know, to see him and Annabelle Sanchez both, like, you know, just, just carving people up. Um, it was, it was cool for that, that thing too. There were a lot of like overdriven cr- cliches kind of blown up in that series where, you know, people were coming out like, okay, well, you know, we hear, you see all these top tier starting pitchers. That's what you have to have. This whole bullpen thing is nonsense, but no, it's still true. Like throughout the whole, you know, the whole playoffs that you needed, you know, you needed strong bullpen work and you can do it either way. You just need you know, whatever, when it gets to postseason time, you need seven or eight good pitchers that you can use and who will take the ball whenever it's it's required. So that, you know, that narrative, you know, was trying to sneak in there and the old heads, you know, were trying to talk about it that way. Like, uh, you know, it makes sense that the two teams with the best, you know, starting pitching would be here. And yeah, I mean, to some degree, but, you know, we've just seen multiple seasons where that didn't necessarily seem to be the case. Um, the Astros obviously have been there twice and, and that worked out, but, um, but yeah, you know, the Yankees don't, don't seem to be, you know, they haven't made it, but you know, a lot of times that just has to do with, you know, small things and not like, well, they didn't, they didn't trade for an ace. Although I have given them grief multiple times for not trading for Justin Verlander and, (laughs) and suffering as a result now, now two different times, but yeah, it was just, um, yeah, I just thought it was, it was cool to see it kind of play out both ways in that, yeah, this, the, it was cool to have these kick-ass starting pitching matchups, even though they didn't really end up panning out, you know, the way we hoped until last night. <clears throat> Other than Strasburg, nobody was really dominant. Garrett Cole wasn't that good. Uh, Max, you know. Yeah, this was, I think, the first time in the postseason that Garrett Cole wasn't just blindingly lights out good. Like, through the ALDS, even the ALCS, he was, like, an unstoppable force Mm -hmm. and and then i think you saw him get to the world series and it was like okay maybe he is human after all because he's given up hits early and we're seeing you know teams kind of take advantage of that and verlander i think what's the the score at now he's pitched in seven world series games and still has yet to win one yep he's 0-6 yep and he was really good through the alds and then yeah it seemed like maybe both of them kind of ran into a wall um, you know, they threw more innings, I think, than anybody else in the game. And obviously, Justin's getting older and has done this for longer than anybody who's still playing. And it, it looked like maybe it was catching up to him a little bit. I know the slider was was the problem, but his command didn't look as good. And I thought Cole, yeah, also kind of looked like he just wasn't wasn't quite as sharp, just didn't quite trust it. It was a weird one just because there wasn't really a single pitcher. And I didn't recognize it in Strasburg until it was like, well, yep, he already did it. But Strasburg was the only one who looked like unhittable, you know, like you're just not going to do much against this guy. Um, and that was a weird feeling I thought for, for the world series, because so many times, you know, it's like, Oh, we're, we're bringing in the lockdown closer and and you feel like, Nope, it's over. You know, the ACE is on the mound. You feel like, Nope, this team doesn't have a shot, but yeah, for all the, all the people kind of looking at the Astros rotation and talking about how good it was, um, you know, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, <laughs> Patrick Corbin and Anibal Sanchez matched up just fine against them. So Yeah. Absolutely, but I thought you know what I thought was was uh, was Joe Smith, yeah, out of the Astros bullpen. Holy Hannah, that guy was basically unhittable. Yeah, he was good. And it, it's you know it's it's that tricky release point, and and that was the thing that they showed too, is that no matter what pitch he's throwing you, it the release point is identical. He's a real monster. Like you can't tell what he's going to throw you, and then he's got that like low sidearm, almost submariner delivery, and it's just 
a nightmare. Like, yeah. Nobody could hit it. Yeah. He's just so good at locating it. Like, if, if anybody, I think, was really a, a really dangerous person coming onto that field, it wasn't the starters, it was Smith. Yeah, because he just looks so different. You, you, like, you just don't have, you just yeah. don't see that kind of, that release point very often. And the pitches all move differently. Like, his curveball, you know, moves yeah. almost like a weird slider. And, yeah, it's it's just a different, uh, just a different sort of thing. Just kind of breaks down all the pitch recognition, you know, visual skills that all these yeah. guys have built up. Yeah, and it's really that... 2016 Andrew Miller vibes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did look dominant. And really, Will Harris was really good, too, in that pitch that Howie Kendrick hit out. Um, in the in the seventh inning, it was a perfect pitch. I mean, it was a cutter down and away right on the edge, and Howie Kendrick just happened to bang it off the foul pole, which was great. I wish pitches hit the foul pole more often, and I wish they were, they were more like things like that in the outfield. There was something about the noise of that home run when it hit the pole. It, just sound, it was like it sounded the bells for the <laughs> Astros in a great way. I was like, I was in love with that. Yeah. Even though, of course, I was kind of rooting for the Astros, but I didn't really have strong interest. I was just glad, you know, like the first five games, I think we all talked about this. Like it just wasn't wasn't that compelling. Like in each game, there weren't there weren't lead changes, and it was like one team kind of got out to a lead and maybe added on a run or two, and that was it. Um, and it it was just really kind of coming down to an anticlimactic finish when you looked at none of the home team the home team didn't win a single game, and they were going into game six and seven. You thought the Nationals probably were behind the eight ball um and then yeah finally like all hell broke loose as as i was waiting for it, it always happens like you know when you get to game seven game six just seems like you, you if it hasn't happened already the baseball gods are going to express some some wrath and chaos and release the the yeah. dionysian forces upon the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah there it is thanks jim morrison for teaching me about yeah apollo and dionysus, dionysus. and their yes and their duality <laughs> <laughs> Dionysus, yeah, Dionysus loves to party. He does, and I'm sure the, the god of wine and revelry. Yeah, he was uh, he was living in Juan Soto yesterday. I thought that was hilarious. Everybody was all excited about Juan Soto. Juan Soto tur- just turning twenty one, and oh, it's his first beer. And everybody, like a, a couple different people I saw online, were like, "Man, I remember when reporters used to have some skepticism." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, he was saying how much he liked champagne. He really liked the taste of the champagne. Yeah. Like his dad was having his own party up in the bleachers. It was pretty, pretty sweet. It was good. I mean, I think the whole Juan Soto story is so delightful. Like, you say what you will. There are people out there that have that old school approach. And, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, too. Like, not to, you know, toot your own horn. But, man, I laughed my ass off when he carried that bat down to first base because Bregman had done it. Yep. Like, yep, for sure. The way he shakes off an inside fastball, like that little like speed skate. Yep, yep, the little shuffle. I don't know what that is, but I love it. He is just a delight to watch. He he does it. And it's kind of like a bull, like getting ready to charge you. Yeah, which I think is interesting because he stares down the pitcher at the same time he does it. And when JV threw him that high inside fastball, he kind of and he knew it was a ball. Like Soto knew. He even said it to the the, the, the umpire. He's like, ball. Yep. But the way he kind of just like nodded, he's like, "Yeah, okay, I see what you're doing there." He, 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 I think people say that that kind of behavior is a disrespect to the pitchers, but I don't think it is. Not the way he does it. I think he he does his own thing to show those pitchers that he knows how serious they are and he knows how good they are. Yeah, he does. When he, he gets a hit out. It shows how good he is. Yeah, he's the type to like you know like Miggy's always done this like giving thumbs up like oh that was a good pitch, bro or, or whatever. He does that too. Yeah, which kind of you know. 
yeah, kind of tones down the whatever feeling of disrespect some people might take from that. Uh, I, I just don't feel this way about these things. Like, I, I liked it when Alex Bregman carried the bat down to first. I thought it was kind of funny. I thought he should have pitched it before he got to Don Kelly and made Don Kelly, like, you know, have to try to take it from him. <laughs> like, but whatever. Like, I just don't care. I, but it was way it was way better when Juan Soto did the same thing. And that at-bat was so great because that pitch you're talking about was a perfect pitch. Like, Verlander was, like, 96. Oh, ton of life, like, right up and in, you know, just above his hands. Um, you know, exactly where he wanted to go, and that that's the pitch that most people can't lay off with Verlander. And not only did Juan Soto not lay off, he shortened his swing, choked down a little bit, knew it was coming again, turned, and just bombed it out of there. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was impressive, really impressive. Man, it was a big coming out party, I think, for the whole nation to, to see Juan Soto on that stage. It was pretty great. Yeah, it was, and I love, you know, every other tweet being, did you know Juan Soto's only 20 years old? Like, I'm like, it's the new, did you know Prince and Cecil Fielder who retired with the same number <laughs> of home runs? Yep. Like, it's just like, yeah, thanks. Yep. Everybody watching baseball knows he's only 20 years old. My mom was just watching with me. She watched the whole series with me, which I thought was really delightful. Oh, that's cool. She got super into it. She got very mad at Doolittle at one point when he was, you know, getting his pitches all mixed up and... She keeps asking me if everybody's married. It's really cute. But, um, at one point, she's, that was her question. She's like, oh, does he have a girlfriend? And I'm like, he's 20 years old, and he's a rookie in the majors. And she's like, oh, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, he's probably single. Yeah. He's, he's, got, he's probably got many girlfriends, yeah. Good if he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Uh, what did he say the last time? I, I did laugh because he was like, "No, no, no." You know, what did he say? That's that's all trouble. But my girlfriend is my mom right now. <laughs> I was like, oh, "That's a good answer, Aww. man." Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, and that's the other thing is he does. I mean, he does come off just like a, a, a pretty sweet young dude who just happens to be a, a baseball playing god. So, yep. And there were, that's the other thing too is I don't think you get that good by spending time, you know, chasing your next girlfriend. I think he's probably spent most of his life yeah. up until now being and becoming that good of a player yeah i think this is true yeah you you can't you can't mess around too much um yeah and and he spent most of his teenage years like in the academy and and it was cool that i thought that they um they had a camera at the or somebody did at the washington washington nationals training academy in the dominican republic and um, those kids were going nuts for, for Soto because some of them grew up oh, with him. Some of them were playing with him. And then, yeah, like he's the one that just like exploded out of their way before, you know, anyone anyone else would, no matter how good they were. Um, just, I mean, and the thing is, he did this last year, too. He was almost as good last year when he was 19. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely been a revelation, um, you know, for all the people that kind of came into the season thinking about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and, you know, it was it was really it was really Juan Soto that took over, um, and really Jordan Alvarez as well. But he just wasn't much of a factor um, in the in the postseason, at least after the race series. Uh, he he kind of went quiet. So uh, he's another guy who could who you know could make a huge showing next year. He's almost what is he? He's like twenty two. So you know he's an old man now, but there's still yeah, time. He's, <laughs> he's to me AL AL rookie of the year for sure. Yeah, this is my take on it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And probably Pete Alonso out in the NL. Yeah, I think I wanted Alonso as well. Yeah, so people were talking about Chris Paddock, but I just he just didn't do that much. He just I don't know. He had a really great stretch when he first came up, but it didn't it didn't last. And he was kind of banged up and came back and was good again. But yeah, I didn't I didn't think I would give it to him. Um, it does seem like um, yeah, Anthony Rendon is going to win the the NL MVP. Um, I don't. I'm curious to see what I would happens. Say Bregman probably in the AL. Yeah, I mean it should be Trout. It should always be Trout, but it felt like 
like you just don't even hear about Mike Trout, and it sucks. Trout, I think, is... <laughs> yeah, he missed some time. Yeah. Yeah, people tend to take him for granted. He did miss some time. He was injured. He still has all the best numbers. But I feel like it's going to be Bregman, just because the Astros did get to the World Series, and I know that shouldn't count or matter. Um, but I, I feel like that's going to be a factor. Yeah, I in memory recency ways. Yeah, I think people would like like the the writers would like to vote for someone who you know was in the postseason and. Any excuse that Mike Trout gives him, like missing some games or some of his numbers being down, they're probably going to take advantage of that so that it's not just like an un- uninterrupted uh, Mike Trout fest, although it probably still should be. Yeah. <laughs> because he is insanely good. Oh, no, I 100% agree with you, but yeah, it's, uh, it is funny how we tend to, to just forget about Mike Trout. Like his amazingness goes so under the radar. Yeah, I mean, he's just overshadowed out there in LA. You know, you got, you know, Brad Osmus was out there. You know, there's some big names. <laughs> Otani, yeah, no, yeah. but it's just because that team, you know, they they just haven't been able to do anything, and unfortunately, like um, we're not going to get into this because this is a whole show's length topic. But the whole uh, Tyler Skaggs, you know, tragic overdose uh, death, and you know the fact that it appears that you know Angels personnel had given him the the drugs, maybe without anyone else's knowledge, but there was someone else, you know, in the front office or in the PR department or somebody. Um, feeding him that stuff, and that there was some awareness of this. Like, I mean, th- there's going to be a the shitstorm has not even begun um, on that front yet. It's, it's still preliminary. Um, the league's got some work to do. <laughs> the league's got some serious work to do this off season. Oh man. Yeah, it's going to be a fucking nightmare. Yeah, yeah, it does. But before we get to the the Astros um, fuckery that perhaps cursed their chances um, in this postseason and made them the the overwhelming um, hated you know, favorite. They basically became the Yankees to, to most of the uh, the country, it seemed like. Let's talk about, let's go real quick to game six and stick with the actual play on the field and talk about the Trey Turner play. Um, if people aren't aware, there was, it was the, what was it, the sixth or seventh inning? I think it was the seventh inning. And um, they had Jan Gomes on, the Nationals had Jan Gomes on first. Um, Trey Turner comes to the plate. He chops one back to the pitcher, who I believe was Will Harris at that point. And Will Harris kind of throws it. No, Will Harris. Was it not Will Harris? Will Harris hadn't even started. Will, um, you know, what was? I can't remember. Because there was that long break and everybody's just a come on egg. Was that? Oh, I just, I can't, yeah, I couldn't remember who, uh, who the pitcher was. (laughs) Who who made the throw. I think it was Will Harris. Like, I think he had just come on. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah. And yeah, so anyway, Trey Turner bounces it kind of back to to Will Harris, sort of in front of, of the, the pitcher's mound. He kind of threw a tailing sinker um, back into the runner, and Trey Turner happened to be on the left side of the, the baseline instead of in the, the two-lined groove on the outside in foul territory, which is perfectly normal because that's how everyone runs all the time. But um, but he happened to run into Guriel's glove as Guriel's glove was hitting him because Guriel was reaching into the like slightly errant throw and that's where the whole thing gets weird because if the throw is errant and it just hits you know it hits Trey Turner in the back or on the right side probably none of that happens but because it was kind of close yeah maybe that's what that's what what made the whole thing happen. Uh, but they called Trey Turner out, so instead of you know Jan Gomes getting to go to to third and Trey Turner advancing to second because the ball deflected off of him and and bounced into foul territory, they called Trey Turner out. They bring Jan Gomes back to first base, 
all hell breaks loose. People are angry. Um, a whole bunch of people on Twitter I saw who are, you know, who are like pretty, you know, these are the people who are supposed to know the rules, like the beat writers were immediately like, wait, what, what could possibly be going on? So people were kind of embarrassing themselves at the beginning by not understanding what was happening at all. And then just fury, just fury, because um, it's just, it's just stupid the way that rule plays out. And you never see it called consistently. And then to see a guy get called out in the in the World Series where it kind of looked like to me that he would beat the throw anyway um, was just yeah. was just painful to watch. Um, and you know everyone was upset. The Nationals were upset. Trey Turner was literally in the dugout yelling at Joe Torre, who was in attendance, um, yep. who was in charge of of he the was, rules. He's right there. Why are you hiding? Why are you right hiding? There. Go talk to him. And I'm like, I'm like Trey Turner. You need to calm down because we don't need you getting thrown out of this game. Yep. But that was the moment when uh, Aunt- Dave Martinez almost gave himself a uh, second heart attack. Oh uh, yeah. But but but, but and the funny thing about that was that even before that happened, Anthony Rendon came up and did what Anthony Rendon did a bunch of times in the postseason, which was, you know, turn the tide, like, completely. Um, hit a two-run shot, took the lead, and they never looked back. Um, and, yeah, they should have had an extra run. And, fortunately, thank God, it just, it just didn't end up mattering. But Davey Martinez lost his mind in between innings, um, even after the home run. And I was, you know, I knew he had had the heart procedure um, not that long ago. And he, he looked like if... He looked like he might throw some punches. Um, Dave Martinez is... As in manager parlance, like a young guy, like he's maybe what, like fifty at most, something like that, and he is built. Like he looks like he's in great shape, and he was furious. And I was like, oh no, this is not the game, you know, to get thrown out of and suspended for half a next season by shoving an umpire over or something like that. He was losing his mind. Oh, the coaches, he was, he was spitting venom. Yep, and the coaches are trying to hold him back, and they couldn't. Like he's literally like bulldozing like two different guys. Toward the umpires, um, he was he was unstoppable. It was amazing, and uh, it, I don't, I guess it made the broadcast like after they came back from commercial. But in the in the moment, we didn't get to see see it happening, and people who were in the stadium were tweeting about it, like, "Oh my God, Davey Martinez is losing his mind. Everybody's wondering what's happening." Yeah, it's one of those times when following like all the right people on Twitter like really makes it a weird. Yeah, and all of a sudden people are like, "Well, he got thrown out," and I'm like, "Yeah, thank you. They didn't show that on the broadcast." Yep. Yeah, yeah, we didn't see any of that. So yeah, it was, it was. I mean, it's kind of always this way for us because we know a lot of baseball writers and watching the games and following like people you know and knowing who to trust and who's there, all that stuff. Like just being kind of tuned into it is just a different experience. Um, that that you know, I've I've really appreciated, especially the last couple seasons, because you just if you know who the right people are, like you you can save yourself a lot of grief because there's just so much nonsense coming at you um, on social media during a game yeah. like that. So yeah. So that's how it, that's how it went down, and then you know Mad Max, like it's it's just mind boggling that he woke up you know on the morning of Game Five and couldn't lift his arm you know at all, and had to be dressed by his wife. His neck was completely locked up, got a cortisone shot and a whole bunch of massage and chiropractic adjustments, and I don't know what else. Maybe, did they shoot a whole bunch of horse tranquilizers into him? I I, I have no idea. You couldn't they must have done you couldn't something. stop him. <laughs> amazing, he was able to play two yeah. days later. And yeah, it was hilarious to watch him in the dugout after he was done, and he was dancing. Yep. It was like jaw seventeen to stop. Like he he could tell that he knew that it was so close to the end, and he was just ready. Like he was ready to run onto that field by the eighth inning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barely, barely restrained enthusiasm. Yeah. I've never seen anybody 
go out and hug their teammates and everybody in their path quite as aggressively yeah. as Max Scherzer was running around hugging people last night. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, there were numerous posts even after the the player celebration kind of kind of wound down where it was just friends and family and we saw like Brian Holiday, former Tigers catcher, and his wife on the field with them celebrating. And Max is just like you know yeah choking people out left and right. Meanwhile, people are grabbing him by the neck and stuff, and I'm all like, oh here here we go. He's getting this isn't gonna go down with an injury right here. But, uh, but yeah, seeing Max get to celebrate like that, like, you know, probably no one wants it as, as passionately as Max Scherzer did, you know, coming into that, that series. Um, you know, he's, he's been at it a long time. The same was true for Justin Verlander, and you saw how he felt in 2017. So to see Max win, and man, I had to put, I had to throw it on Facebook on the, the Bless You Boys page immediately, because seeing him and Annabelle, you know, talking and like, oh, we finally won one, they're crying, and they're just like, you know, aggressively bro-hugging each other like you could just feel like how much yeah. this had been on them for all the, all those years um which doesn't help tigers fans out at all but was still really cool to see them kind of exercise a demon that you know in the moment you could tell had, had really been present for them all this time so yeah that was uh that was super emotional um people were people were weeping all over detroit let alone uh, washington so yeah that was that was really cool and here we go. You know, we've got uh, just about everyone of importance um, in Tiger baseball since <laughs> since 2012 now as, as a World well, Series over the last three the seasons. Entire 2013 pitching rotation, or the 2014 at least, now has a World Series ring. Yeah, the 14. Yeah, Doug Fister is the only one who didn't didn't get one out of the, the 13 group. And then yeah, you got JD Martinez, yeah. Ian Kinsler, all those guys got one last year. Uh, and Fernando Rodney, God love him. <laughs> Hung in there this long, and finally we finally won one. You didn't have a whole lot to do with it, but that's all right. Oldest, old, oldest active player in the majors. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. That, that's really cool to, to. I mean, he's got to appreciate it like nobody else, because yeah, all the all the times that he was on good teams that were supposed to do something and, and didn't, and really the last yeah. couple of years it's kind of just been you know he's sort of just been like Edwin Jackson style, like kind of getting bumped around. Still reasonably effective, but yeah, no one, no one really actively excited about trading for him or, or signing him. So, yeah, it might uh, might be the end of the road for him, and this would be a great way to uh, just sail off into the sunset. Well, great. If this is the end of his career, which I mean, he may now that he's won it decide, you know what? I think I'm good. Um, he'll he might put himself out there for to see if another team comes and gets him. But yeah, I mean, he's done it all now. Yeah, he's, he's done everything he you, that a player sets out to do. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and you know he is still reasonably good, so like you know, or at least effective. So yeah, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe he will just be like, well, see what's out there. See who's sees interested in this off season. Um, and in the end, like the the overarching story is just like how incredible it is that the Washington Nationals came back from the the, the start that they had. Like after you know Bryce Harper let leaves, you know they made some moves. I think everybody thought they'd be good, but they you know everybody knew there was some problems in their bullpen. And as it turned out, the bullpen was catastrophically bad, and they were 19 and 31 at one point in late May. Um, which I think is the the worst record anyone has ever come back from. If I I'm pretty sure I saw someone uh, credible say that last night. So I mean, t- just incredible to see them come back, and it just seemed like they were left for dead more times than that. Like you know, they, they'd make a push, and people'd be like, "Oh, here they come again," and then it would fall apart again. And you know, in the end, their bullpen consisted of you know a, a seemingly somewhat banged up Sean Doolittle, uh, Daniel Hudson, who 
you know, wasn't even pitching for anyone earlier in the season and, you know, had to be, was, yeah. it was just picked up, you know, kind of with no, no other, other teams interested by the nationals and ends up closing the whole thing out for them. Um, anyone who's read Jeff Passon's the arm, um, all about Tommy John surgery and, and pitcher injuries, Daniel Hudson, um, is, is kind of the featured story in that book. And of course endured a Tommy John surgery. And then in his very first, um, rehab start coming back like a year later, blew the whole thing out again. Um, just, just kind of an agonizing and, and painful story. And I don't know how many people really, really knew that story last night, but, um, seeing him win a world series after everything he'd been through was pretty incredible. That was, that was really cool. So yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of good stories, a lot of good stories coming out last night. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So now I guess we have to turn to the bad story, which was the, uh, the Astros, um, front office and their, their, their bizarre ability to both be the smartest, um, most savviest, most innovative front office in the game, and also like the most dumb, like the most just like offensively, uh, irresponsibly dumb in in some ways. And if people don't know, um, oh god, let me recap the whole thing. But yeah, in uh, in 2018, Roberto Ozuna was suspended for domestic violence. Um, he would miss 75 games, but because the league is dumb. Uh, he was still allowed to play in the postseason, which wouldn't happen if you got popped for steroids, despite the lack of um, anyone being physically injured by uh, by someone using steroids. So figure that out, MLB. But uh, yeah, so anyway, the Astros did this. They went ahead and traded for him, um, despite howls of protest and other teams kind of saying like, nope, we're, just, we're not going to touch him. And the Astros being the Astros, oh, we're, we're going to be smarter than everybody else and we're going to pick him up and, you know, everyone can yell and scream at us and, you know, and... In the time, like they they you know made about as good a show as you you could after doing something like that of like we're gonna take this really seriously you know Roberto Ozuna is gonna play somewhere but you know we're gonna be dedicated to making sure you know he gets himself on the right track we're gonna do all this stuff with domestic violence and they made it perfectly clear over the past year that that was you know that was complete lift service and they thought they could just do this tell everyone to go fuck themselves basically and you know just pay lip service whenever necessary and just get away with it and um as it as it became pretty obvious there's at least one person in the astros front office and probably a whole bunch of them who resented even having to answer any questions about this or or even taking it seriously um and kept a vendetta toward some of the female reporters particularly who had called them out a little bit on it and um and had just you know just kind of continued to you know, make the point that Roberto Ozuna is a domestic abuser and, you know, and kind of wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't let it go because you shouldn't let it go and tried to do what the Astros said they were going to do and use it to, you know, sort of promote domestic violence hotlines and, and awareness. And it was the, the reporters who had to do that. The Astros didn't do squat as far as I can tell on that front. And um, in the end, Brandon Taubman, um, Astros GM lit into the reporters in this profanity-laced rant about how you know it was awesome that they got Ozuna. There was no one else around. This was just kind of completely out of the blue. He just noticed um, the reporters and decided he was gonna gonna wade in there and um, and stick it to him and was just screaming at him about this. Um, a whole bunch of people witnessed this, and yet the Astros, in their infinite wisdom, decided to deny that it ever happened and claim that the reporter who wrote about it, who they refused to give comment to the day before when when asked um, and could have said their piece then, pretended like she made the whole thing up and tried to smear the reporter. And in the end, the whole thing blew up in their face because it was in a locker room after an ALCS victory and everyone, you know, there were people everywhere and cameras and people recording probably. 
And uh, the whole thing was just the most asinine, stupid display of hubris I've seen in quite a while. Um, and it was just, amp you know, extra disgusting because of the, the subject. Like, it's, the, you know, it's, there aren't too many more serious subjects in domestic violence. And, uh, and the way the Astros, you know, took it, handled it, um, was just, just god-awful egregious. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and to do that, and, you know, and for the players, um, other than Ozuna himself, who, like, had nothing to do with this, I, I feel nothing but, like, this, how much that must suck for them. Because they didn't make this decision, and it's one of those times when, you know, the player always ends up catching the shit. Like, the owner doesn't catch, you know, grief for things. You know, it's the player who's supposed to be loyal to the team. Um, fans don't get mad at their owner for not being loyal to the player, but they, but it's always the reverse. And in this situation, like the Astros didn't do the right thing. And so they leave their players who are the ones who are, you know, the forward facing people in the organization to like have to, you know, whatever, like try to, try to somehow balance what's been drilled into them since they were five about being a good teammate and not, not letting things, you know, not talking out of turn outside of the clubhouse, all that, that culture, um, and, and try to balance that with a lot of them who had previously taken really strong stances about Ozuna and domestic violence in general. And the whole thing was just such a clusterfuck. Um, oh, it was like they messed up every way they could. Yeah, in every way. And, and like on purpose. they had a chance to make it better, <laughs> they managed to make it worse. Mm-hmm. And all they had to do was say, we've heard the, in we've heard the allegations, we will look into this further, and once we've completed our investigation, we'll comment at that time. Mm. Releasing a statement that, like, besmirches and smears the reputation of a reporter when she and, and the Sports Illustrated yeah. gave them an opportunity, and then, like, doubling down and refusing to retract the statement until a week later. Yeah. Like, and, and like, saying, oh, we apologize. They asked, somebody asked um, one of the owners or one of the, like, the GMs or somebody was asked at one point if he had apologized to Stephanie Epstein, who wrote the article. And he says, no, I, I haven't had the time. And Epstein was in the room. Yep, that was Jeff Luno. Yep, Yeah. that was the GM. Yep. Like, it's just staggering to me how bad they were at this, when just a little measured, like, distance and subtlety would have saved them so much headache. Yep. And it's, it's a mirror of what they did during the Justin Verlander situation with Anthony Fennick where they stood by their their decision, which was so stupid because it's a violation of the CBA, but they could have just said, you know what, we're not going to discuss this, um, we're going to look at it further, blah, blah, blah. Right, we, we, we take this extremely seriously, and so we're going to investigate thoroughly and, you know, and take See a measured why response. The, why the reporter was barred, what happened, yep. um, you know, what, what happened there. But, like, nope, they admitted right away that they'd done it. They basically insinuated that Verlander had asked for it and, you know, dug their own grave. And then, again, they did it here. And I think what it, it goes to show, I mean, and the, the important thing I think we, we have to say ahead of time is that neither of us feel like this represents anything against the players. Because the players have nothing to do with this, with the exception of Ozuna, who sucks ass. Pardon my French. But um, it has nothing to do with the players. Like, when everybody on Twitter was rallying out against the Astros for this behavior, it wasn't the Astros, the players on the team. Nobody was saying the Astros, the team, deserved to lose because of what their front office and what their PR department were doing so badly. So, well, I, I, well, didn't I, well, I don't know. Didn't everybody say that, though, honestly? <laughs> I don't know. I think some people did. Some people were like, "Oh, I'm going to root for the Nationals now." Yeah, I don't but, think anyone like blamed the players, but I but there was a distinct like national like 
fuck the Astros campaign that went on. That is perfectly understandable. Um, but yeah, but I'm sure it's just another example of how this all sucked for Houston Astros fans in particular, who you know just find themselves well, like blindsided. Yeah, that's true. Terrible things. That's that true. Were being said to Stephanie Epstein, to Sports Illustrated about Stephanie Epstein. Yep. People very much just riding the bandwagon of accusing her of lying. Yep. Um, and that's something that could have genuinely ruined her career had not, you know, Sports Illustrated stood behind her, had her not her fellow journalists kind of like picked up the ball and been like, no, I was there. I saw it. She didn't make it up. I was a witness. And, you know, I, I think... Yeah, and especially in these times in this country. Years. Yeah, this the way things are in this country right now, too, it, it really, like, stood out um, as, a, as just, a you know, another example of, you know, how free powerful people feel to just, like, lie their head off and say whatever, no matter what it, you know, what it might do, um, not just to, to her career, but just to journalism in, in general, which is absolutely necessary to live in a free and democratic society. So, uh, yeah. The whole thing felt awful, and the Astros, like, it's it's just baffling. Like, it's one of those things where you almost feel like organization, like, you, you, you almost diagnose them as an organization as having this, this thing where they're so, you know, they're so incredibly good at some things that they just assume that they can do whatever they want now in any other way, you know, and don't see, like, just how bad they are. Um, I don't, I hate to even put it, like, as in PR terms, because it's more than PR, um, although the PR department in particular seems like literally everyone in it should be fired because they, they've got a, like a long track record now of just absolutely horrific decision making, sometimes without it even seeming to have come from anyone else. Like it seems like, you know, they're, they're kind of just wild west in it over there. Like, oh, you know, Justin Verlander doesn't want to talk to Anthony Fennick. We're going to physically ban Anthony Fennick from coming into the, the clubhouse. Um, you know, you can't, you can't do those kind of things. Um. And yeah, and that all it all comes back to the front office. Um, when you, you have an assistant GM, you know, show that much like viciousness and, and vitriol like a year later about this thing. Um, I mean, it just it just makes you assume that the entire you know front office has just been stewing over this for the past year, feeling like oh everyone should just shut up and this is stupid and we don't care about this and no one really cares. You know, all oh, social justice warriors, all mad about uh, domestic violence, like whatever. So yeah, I mean it, it's it was just an awful look, um, an awful look from the Astros, and uh, I don't know they they've got a lot of rethinking I think to do um, this off season. They're going to lose Garrett Cole. Um, some of that team is getting a little bit older. You've got guys like George Springer approaching free agency and and thirty years old now. I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see if if the run continues and if that front office. Um, because frankly, this story I think is just starting. There was the, um, the special assistant to the general manager of the Houston Astros quit today. Um, there've been a couple other people who've left the organization recently. All kind of, you know, making it sound like they they weren't happy um, with the culture there in, in certain ways. Garrett Cole, um, after Game Seven, you know, was supposed to go speak to the media and was like, "Well, I'm not an employee of the Astros anymore." <laughs> it was yeah. basically like that, and they kind of talked him into it. Yep, went in, went in. Yep, I'm, I'll represent myself, but I'm not representing the Astros, which, uh, I mean, that just tells you to me. Like, you know, you could read too much into that, but I have to imagine the players were just mortified to have to go through that and to have, you know, someone who's sensibly in a position of high responsibility in your organization shoot you all in the foot, um, you know, right before the World Series. I, you know, I just, it was just, it was just a, just the worst. <laughs> I don't know. I guess kudos to him. 
as a team because they they played pretty well and they looked. I mean, I thought going into game six and seven, this thing was over. So yeah, absolutely. So good good job, Nats. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. I mean, the, I I kind of felt like the early rounds weren't super exciting. Like it just didn't kind of have the sizzle, but it slowly uh, it slowly got itself together as things went along. I think I you know. Some of it is just MLB's dumbass scheduling with all these day games in the playoffs. Like, I don't know why you do that, but I barely, like, the Braves were knocked out before I even saw saw them play. <laughs> it was like, well, all right. You know, well, I was, stu- I was like, I mean, yes, I wanted to see Rays games at night, but I was surprised that they picked two Rays-Astros games to be day games. Like, that seemed like such a weird choice to me. Like, the Astros were a front runner to be in the World Series, and yet they're going to Yankees games instead. And I, I feel like that's, I mean, yeah, I get it, the ratings. But right, right. There's going to be ratings for an Astros game, even if the Rays are involved. Like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, the other, yeah, I mean, the Astros and the Rays were, like, you know, two of the most, inter- certainly the most interesting teams and, and talented. I thought the Rays, you know, kind of had, like, the best story um, going in. And the Astros are, you know, this kind of industry-leading juggernaut now with a whole bunch of star talent and a whole bunch of players, you know, I have to say that I really like. So, um, you know, George Springer, super likable, super likable guy, um, you know, does a lot of charity work. Jose Altuve, like, who doesn't love Jose Altuve? I love Carlos Correa. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Carlos Correa. Just seems like, you know, a, a super genuinely nice dude. Um, and he and his girlfriend are very present on social media and pretty fun. Um, and then Justin Verlander, of course, who I'm, I'm just, you know, the world's ultimate fanboy of. So, although he did fade, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how JV does next year, because this was the first postseason where I kind of thought, like, eh, maybe this is the point where where the the old Start is starting to get him. Turn, yeah. yeah, probably not, you know, rapidly. Um, and he did kind of showcase a, a lot better changeup than I've seen from him in years um, and used it more. So you can kind of see the future for him there of, of starting to mix in that and not being able to rely so much on just blowing people away. But, um, but yeah, you know, a little bit of velocity drop, a little bit of command drop. Guys can't throw 250, 260 innings year after year until they're 36 and, and, and not feel it. And I think the max thing was, was like really illustrative too of just like what condition um, the pitchers especially are at this time of the year. Like so many of these guys are just destroyed physically just pitching yeah. through agony, um, you know, all kinds of treatment, cortisone shots, anything you can do to stay on the mound. Yeah. So, yeah, postseason, postseason 2019. Baseball I mean, is over. I'd give it a B plus, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the first part of it was a bit boring. Like, I was, I watched uh, most of it. Actually, I watched most of the World Series. Um, I think I skipped the entire championship series on both <laughs> sides. Uh, I was peripherally watching the Nationals to see how they did. I obviously watched the Division Series quite closely. Um, I think I needed that bitterness window of the Championship Series to get myself excited for the World Series again. Yeah. Um, yeah, you did some nesting, um, got some stuff yeah, going I at the house. <laughs> yeah. So that I could watch it, you know, in, in comfort and joy. Um, but yeah, I think that the initial parts of the World Series were pretty boring. But then at the same time, I think about it and I think... I don't remember a single game from the Chicago Cubs Cleveland Indians series except for the last one. Yeah. And the last That's one true. was insane. You know, there was a rain out in the middle and like extra innings and insane home runs and there's and the, even the Astros Dodgers series was just filled with craziness. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was a wild the one. Only, the only game I remember from the the Dodgers Red Sox series was the like 17 hour Oh god. Million yeah inning 
long one. That's a good point. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember that much of that series other than like Joe Kelly and Nathan Eovaldi and everyone being exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, and so like I mean, that's the thing. I think that a lot of times that the games themselves throughout a series may not necessarily be the most interesting, and and I think we saw some very crazy stuff happen, especially in Game Six. Yeah. Um, but even Game Seven itself wasn't. I don't know that I would call it exciting. Like I came home and I'd like been out most of the night and I finished watching it and yeah, it was tense and it was cool that they you know kind of started out looking like an Astros lead and then you know the the Nationals came in and really threw everything for a loop after Greenkey had such a really tremendous outing. Yeah, he did. Um, and I think that's just that's a game. That's a baseball game. That goes to show you you can't count on anything because things can change at the last minute. But I don't think I've ever seen anything like what I saw in Game Six. Yeah, like, yeah, that was wild. <laughs> and some terrible and egregious mistakes by the umpire crew oh. throughout the series, like some called balls and strikes that had me shaking my head pretty seriously. And and for the longest time, I was a proponent of saying you need that human element. And I think that umpires are valuable, and I think they get it right more than they get it wrong. And I think, statistically speaking, yes, they do get it right more than they get it wrong. But lately, when they're getting it wrong, they're getting it so wrong that I'm starting to think robot umpires are not a bad call. Yeah, and there's just there's just so much riding on it, you know. Um, there's well, especially just, in the World Series, yeah. Yeah, that one call that stands out, you know, is it's just it's just always going to stand out more than the 99% that you that you crushed and did great on. Um, although the based on what I saw, like the um, the ratio wasn't that good. <laughs> Wasn't wasn't ninety nine percent, but they were you know they were probably ninety ninety one percent accurate. Um, I saw someone kind of breaking that down, but yeah, I I I thought that was it was frustrating that that was kind of that that you know that the moment with Trey Turner was was sort of the thing people are going to take away, and that yeah overall I I thought it was pretty sloppy home plate umpiring, like it wasn't even um, like consistently like you get this edge or that edge. It was sort of just. It almost felt like they were making make you know it was like all makeup calls you know most of the game well, like we didn't call that one so then we give this egregious one there was a lot of that sort of back and forth. Game five where they called something a ball or called something a strike and like Jan Gomes got up and was like what the heck and like the umpire is basically like well guess you shouldn't have moved or yeah you know he called it a, he called it a strike after Gomes stood up because it was a ball. And so Gomes was already standing up, and the umpire's like, strike! And Gomes is like, are you serious? And he's like, maybe you shouldn't have stood up. And he's like, so it's my fault? Yeah, and yeah, it was the reverse. Was... Yeah, they called it a ball, even though it was a strike, because he started to stand up to throw. And yeah. The most insane thing I've ever seen, yeah. aside from that crazy Trey Turner call-out. I'm like, this isn't... It was so ump show. Like, it was like, yeah. this isn't about you. Yeah. This is about the game. And, like, who cares if your feelings get hurt, guy? You are never going to be the popular one. Yeah, and like, I just I did, and I and just feel like the human element part, that's all for show. And you can still keep that. Like, you know, I, I mean, I understand, like, people want it to look the same way. I kind of do, too. I, yeah. I, it would feel weird to me if the umpire had nothing to do with that. But I just think there's got to be a way to, like, feed the calls to him, you know? Or... Yeah, for stuff like, and I agree. Like, I think there's stuff that umpires do, and even the little things. Like, it's stuff like when a catcher takes a ball, like, takes the bat off their helmet and is obviously rattled, and there's no real reason to stop gameplay. Yeah. But the umpire's the guy who's like, mm, I'm going to go out and dust this home plate off for a minute or two so this guy can get his, you know, get the birds back in their cage. And, and like, I, I think that there are absolutely elements to like measuring a game and understanding gameplay and making sure things are done properly 
that a robot called Ball Strike can't do. Yeah. But I think inserting that element of, of not having to worry about balls or strikes, or at least having that backup on balls and strikes, it definitely would benefit it, and it would make it easier for them to do those other parts of that game. So I don't know. Yeah, so at least robot-assisted umps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, other than that, I, I guess my impression was just that it was a really well-played series between, you know, an Astros team that, that looks like one of the best teams I've ever seen and a Nationals team that when they have it going, look, you know, just as good. Like, they're, you know, a little weaker in the bullpen, but really matched up with them well. I thought, like, it wasn't like a chaotic sort of series. Like, when when someone got a hit, you could see what the mistake was almost. Um, and both teams were really, you know, pretty consistently executing all the way through and and each game seemed to have like you know like that one point there was there was like an inflection point rather than like a whole stream of chaos going on especially those first five games it was like you you could see where nope that's that's where the worm turned like it was that Juan Soto home run or you know it was Alex Bregman you know crushing this three-run shot or the grand slam those kind of things like there was a there was punctuation like that and then yeah it did get kind of squirrely I guess the last decision of the season that that is going to be carried over and scrutinized is how AJ Hinch handled things in the in the sixth inning. Like the Astros were, what leading by two. Um, Zach Greinke was dealing. I think he'd only thrown like sixty pitches and gave up a home run and then walked to, to Anthony Rendon and then walked Juan Soto and that was it. And they lifted him and then that entire for Will Harris. Um, Howie Kendrick hits a screamer off the foul pole, and then everything goes to crap after that. Did you think that A.J. Hinch could have handled that a different way, or is that just, just kind of baseball and Will Harris threw a good pitch and, you know, Howie Kendrick just happened to happened to hit it out just barely? I, I think it's baseball. I think, I think people will disagree with me, but Hinch did what had worked for him for most of the series, mm-hmm. and the series is before. And I think sometimes you do just get guys that get a good hit, and it's just the way baseball works. Pitcher can be throwing everything right, can be locating those pitches perfectly, and that batter is just going to go out, and sometimes they're going to hit that ball out. And if that didn't happen that way, baseball would be very boring. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, sure, he could have done things differently. He could have, I mean, there's a lot of discussion as to why he didn't use coal. Yeah. Um, and maybe had he used coal, things could have turned out differently. I feel like Cole thinks that that's the case. Uh, and I think that that's a big part of why he kind of immediately did his little bit of a heel turn at the end. Um, I think he had a very much of the I, I'm the Zach Britton of this game kind of vibe. Yep. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. Because, I mean, the Nationals, even though they were the wild card team, and even though nobody thought that they were going to do this, they played good baseball. And yeah. they'd been through six previous games against these guys. And at a certain point, when you see Will Harris... For the seventeenth time in a series, yeah, there's a chance that maybe you're gonna figure them out. Yep, yeah, for sure. And you know, I mean, the Ast- or the Nationals. I think what was that? That was the game seven. Was the fifth elimination game they played in in the postseason, and they won them all. Um, it was just one of those one of those runs. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Will Harris pitch to, to Kendrick was so good that you know. It was just a tip your cap moment. I I kind of thought he should have pulled Grinky to start the inning um, because he was coming into the the heart of the order the third time, and I don't really want you know I don't want to see anybody pitch to Anthony Rendon and Juan Soto Soto three times um, in a in a Game Seven World Series game. 
So I probably would have would have gone with Cole there, but I've I've seen some pretty good arguments for why you know Grinky was cruising. Um, you know th- those two guys hadn't seen many pitches the first time up. Um, you know he was still obviously very fresh, only at like sixty pitches, and there was no reason to really think that he was going to go off the rails. Um, I I don't know for my money that's where I I make the decision. Like I'm either going to ride Zach Grinky through this inning and and stick with him. Or I'm going with Garrett Cole, but I, I can I can see it both ways. I think I think where it goes wrong is when people say he should have brought Garrett Cole in, you know, once once Grinky was in trouble, and that to me seems like a bad idea to to put a starter right into the heat of the the moment like that. Like to start an inning, yeah, and I and I do think it's really pretty pretty weird that Garrett Cole didn't pitch in that game, and I also thought that AJ Hinch didn't do himself any favors when his quote was basically. You know, I was going to use him for one inning only, and I was only going to use him if we had, you know, if we had the lead, and I wanted to use him in the ninth to close it out. Like that's a weirdly, like specific yeah. plan, um, and, and you had the lead, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure why, but I think you're right. It did feel like Garrett Cole felt like you know he'd been up throwing, and they just decided not to go to him, and then you lose the game. You know, I'm sure as you know one of the best pitchers in the game, you feel like you would have you would have handled things differently, but. I, I just, yeah, I go back to that Will Harris pitch and how good it was and the fact that he's been the guy who gets called into the, the fire, you know, all, all postseason long. And they went with it that time, and it was just a just a pretty slick piece of hitting and probably some good luck from Howie Kendrick, and that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. It's, uh, I mean, that's how baseball goes. It's luck. Half of the time, I mean, it's skill, it's skill, and then it's luck. Yeah. That's <laughs> how it goes. Yep, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, if, you know, readers of Bless You Boys, like, it's been a little quiet on the site, uh, you know, no doubt in October, and, you know, we apologize for that, but everybody really did kind of need a break, and we've had a habit in past years of sort of, like, diving right into the, the off season, like, the minute the season's over, and almost writing ourselves out of <laughs> out of things to write by, you know, like, the end of October, um, so I think it's actually going to play out better on um, the way things have, have kind of gone this year kind of gave ourselves a little bit of a break. I think everybody's feeling a little bit refreshed and the weather's turning crappy, so we're all forced indoors now. And so the uh, the, the the great analysis portion of the off-season can now begin as we get ready for, and the rosterbation, of course. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so that's all That's all going to be coming your way. Um, the Tigers haven't really done a whole lot notable. Um, you know, they trimmed a couple guys. There, there weren't really any moves that were, that were unexpected. They've got the 40-man roster down to 33. Um, there's a couple guys who are going to have to be added guys like, you know, maybe Derek Hill, but certainly like Isaac Paredes, Anthony Castro. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some guys in some decisions like that that'll be made quickly before um, we get onto like the free agent portion. Um, the only real recent news is that today the Tigers fired um, Doug Mankiewicz as the Toledo Mudhens manager uh, one year after giving him a two year deal and, and sounding a bit you know, teams just kind of indicate these things. You never know, but it did kind of sound like he was a guy that they could see managing the team in the future at that point. And they didn't really give any any good explanation for why they decided to go in another direction. Um, Al Avila mumbled something to Lynn Henning. It sounds like about discipline, but um, that that yeah, that didn't really make a whole lot of you know sense or or bring any real clarity to it. Um, you know. What did he say? Doug Minkowitz didn't seem very happy. I'll say that. Um, the only thing is that, hey, the, you you guys, the Tigers, hired me because you said I had the potential to be a big league manager, and now you give me a two-year deal, and then the next year you fire me. You can't be this reactionary during a rebuild, he said, of the Tigers' big league reconstruction. So, 
he didn't seem didn't seem very thrilled um, to to be let go. But it's that's also kind of a lot of being a minor league manager is that you know you might just get shuffled all over the place and managing at AAA in particular is really hard because your roster just gets destroyed like all the time. Like guys are getting called up, guys are getting sent down. You've got guys who are injured rehabbing who you can only use you know the way that the front office is demanding that they be used to protect them. Uh, everybody at the AAA level, you know, is is a step from the majors, and maybe in some ways more reticent to make any changes at that point, or to think that they really have to do anything different. Um, it, it's it's hard to get through to guys, I bet, at that level a little more than it is when they're younger. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's kind of got that. You know, this is what got me here, and you want me to change now when I'm right on the doorstep vibe. So it is a. A tricky position, and it should be interesting to see who they pick because the Tigers are going to have, you know, Casey Mize, Matt Manning, all these guys, Alex Fajardo, Isaac Paredes, um, Tarek Skubal, like all these guys are going to going to hit Toledo at various points next year. So whoever has that job is going to be in charge of all the Tigers' most valuable merchandise. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you got to trust, and that's what bugs me though. I think is that the problem is that they're looking for a guy who's going to tow the Tigers' way, and. I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know if that way is working, and I don't know if that way should be the way. And I think maybe having an independent thinker involved in in the process yeah. is um, important. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we've all kind of, kind of really tried to wrap... Well, I don't know. I mean, I think we have wrapped our heads around why the Tigers don't go out and poach talent from the top teams. It just feels like the Tigers believe that they do things better the right way and other teams don't like it really feels like the tigers have this kind of stubborn throwback you know we're going to do things you know our way we're going to do things the right way we're going to play you know some old school ball here we want our minor league guys not to necessarily just be working on skills but like doing the things to win games like sacrifice bonding all that kind of stuff that a lot of the best teams don't really do anymore because they just want their guys to focus you know what what limited training time and, and game time there is on freaking hitting dongs, man. Hit dongs. Yeah. You can't get to the Hit majors the with a sacrifice bunt. So Dong town. Yeah. Dongers. Dongs fun to say. <laughs> it is. It's a great word. That's the one thing I really like about the Astros, though. I mean, there's a lot of things I like about the Astros. Specifically, a lot of their players are very delightful, like we talked about. But my favorite term might be springer dinger. Oh yeah, um, I'm a really big fan of those signs. I think it's just a really hilarious phrase. Oh yeah, so, um, yeah, I like it much better than their their postseason motto of "Take it back," which in the in light of the Ozuna stuff was just just couldn't couldn't have been put any worse. Probably in some ways, it was it was uh, it just did not go well. It did not go well. So. I think we're, we'll wrap it up there. We're going to get on um, next week and we'll start talking about, yeah, like who the Tigers might sign, what they might start thinking about. Hopefully there'll be a little bit of news. We'll get um, some of the, the guys who are added to the 40-man roster to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. All those kind of announcements are coming. Um, we're going to do a whole lot of player reviewing and we're going to do a whole lot of, hey, what about signing this guy? And of course, you, the listener, and the reader and the commenter's job is to jump right in there and be like, the Tigers aren't going to sign anybody. You can't get them. They're not going to spend. You can't get that guy. That guy doesn't want to play here. And this is, you know, this is the ritual. So, welcome to the off season. Just, just know, <laughs> go. people, that we have to write something. Mm-hmm. We have to write about potential things. We also know very few things will happen. Yeah. But 
we might hit one or two of them correctly. Yeah, this process has has made us big winners on on certain uh, occasions in the past, such as when Rob like wrote the thing predicting that we were going to trade for David Price um, in twenty fourteen, way before anybody else had even thought of it, because we were just going through like who, you know, who might they trade for? What do they need? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's fine, you know. I don't expect the Tigers to do a whole lot either. None of us do, but simply by going through this, it kind of like helps everybody think their way through like what's possible, who's available out there. Um, it's just good for it's just good for the old baseball brain, in my opinion, that we all kind of get to take a, a closer look at all the free agent candidates, even if even if they're too fancy for us and we can't have even even a, a lowly bone thrown to us like Alex Avila coming back. So. We're going to do that. You're just going to have to deal with it, and we'll be covering all the off-season stuff, um, all the free agent market, everything. And there's going to be a whole lot. There's some topics we haven't even talked about, like the potential minor league restructuring. Um, mm-hmm. there's, and as we as we reference, there's going to be some fallout um, on the Astros, and there's going to be some fallout on the Angels and that whole Tyler Skaggs uh, overdose uh, story because, gee, boy, there, there just seems to be a lot more um, there. And the opioid crisis being what it is, uh, it's it's somewhat inexplicable that this hasn't kind of already already hit um, Major League Baseball and 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 the big sports in general because those dudes are in pain all the time. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a subject that must be dealt with swiftly and and comprehensively by the league. And uh, you know how much faith do you have that that'll happen? We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I feel good. Like we got back in the air, kind of kind of cracked yeah, the husk loose again. All right. I into it. Right on. Good talking to you. Um, everybody, we'll be back with a new episode next week. Um, we're also going to try to score some guests. We've got a couple ideas. Um, we, we need to get Diane Firstman in here when her book yeah, comes out. That'll Diane be cool. Yeah, to talk about her new book about baseball names. Mm-hmm. Great baseball names. I'm excited for that one. Yep, yep. There's been a couple Tiger history books that came out lately, like that one about Tiger Stadium. I'd kind of like to talk to that guy, but I, I've just always, you just don't know what you're going to get. Like, you know what that person knows, but you don't know what their personality is. So We should bring Tiger's history on yeah we should we could do that yep yeah Yeah. he always has good stuff he's amazing yeah and you'll probably hear some of the 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 srd boys chris brown um roger martin will probably be on at some point i'll probably talk to jay markle some more about prospects we'll do that my next uh my next mission is to um to start badgering paul sporer um of pitcher list and fan graphs to come on because he's a tigers fan and uh, we need we need some some people with different perspectives on this uh this broke-ass rebuild and how to go about it so, <laughs> so so i guess that'll about wrap it up for today ashley it's great talking to you good to hear your you voice too. all right happy well, halloween happy halloween everybody see you next week Bye bye <laughs>